You're listening to Nutty Bites, now with 60% more Klingon. The following was originally recorded and broadcast on CHSR 97.9 FM in Fredericton, New Brunswick. Please listen to the following, an interview with author Robert J. Sawyer, conducted by Nukchas, Mark the Encaffeinated One, and Tech. Thanks for uh, taking the time to, to do this interview with us. I hope you're having a good con so far. I am very much so. It's a blast. Um, now, you have written how many books now? I lost track a while ago. 22 novels and three short story collections. And, and how, books. how many years has it been since you started that first novel on the road? Well, I do a novel a year. So my first one came out in 1990. And, you know, my 22nd came out this spring. So that's just about on track for one every year. With the amount of research you do for each novel, how do you manage to get one out every year? Because you do several months of research. I do. I do about four months of yeah. research. And I'd like to do more in some cases. Uh, sometimes, actually, uh, for instance, when I had my trilogy, Wake, Watch, and Wonder about the World Wide Web Gaining Consciousness, I had sold all three books uh, as a package in advance. So I was able to take an entire year to do the research for those books without having to worry about writing anything. Mm-hmm. That was your paid up front when you sell a package of books. Um, but it's a full-time job, and it keeps me busy. Uh, Stephen King once famously said that no book in the history of literature ever should have taken more than two years to write. There's a lot of uh, people making it out to be a bigger job than it is to write a book. It is hard work, takes a lot of time, but if it's what you're doing 40 hours a week uh, for 50 weeks out of the year, you can get a lot of effort put into the project. That's true. This is your full-time job, too. I've been, been very doing it for that fortunate. Long. Very fortunate. Um, in fact, I was a full-time writer before my first novel came out. I've been a full-time writer. I celebrated, uh, actually, uh, this spring, my 30th anniversary of being a full-time writer, although I was mostly a nonfiction writer, magazine and newspaper journalism and so forth prior to that. But this country, Canada, has been wonderfully good to me. Of all the things the government has done, uh, to support the arts, number one has to be socialized medicine. My colleagues in the States uh, you know, keep dreaming of being a full-time writer when they retire mm-hmm. from whatever job they've been shackled to because of the necessity to have something that will give them health insurance for them, for their, their kids, for their spouse, or whatever. And here in Canada, we get to go full-time in our 20s if we're willing to not necessarily have an opulent lifestyle at the outset. <laughs> I'm just going to ask you about trilogies because you've done. I, I don't I've done many. a trio of trilogies yeah. <laughs> for a total of nine books. Now, does, is there something about the trilogy format that you find? Uh, you know, is it is it a format you feel that you you you, you gravitate toward for certain subjects, or it just happen to be that way? Uh, neither. I don't like trilogies. I don't like to read them, and I don't like to write them. It is the publishers who like trilogies. And the reason publishers like them is they like trilogies and they like ongoing series. It's easy for their salespeople to go into a bookseller and say, this is volume two of the thing you sold last year. Great, I'll take it. Say, here's something completely different from what this guy wrote last year. Oh, well, tell me about it, and I'll see if maybe I think my audience, my, my customers will be interested in it. They like you to deliver over and over again. The whole mystery fiction genre is based on that. An author becomes identified with his or her series character, and they'll do a book a year, and it's a fine career, and nobody has to think. I like to make both my readers and my booksellers think and say, you know, yeah, last year he did this novel called Triggers about collective uh, uh, collective awareness and, and empathy and so forth, and this year he's done Red Planet Blues, and it's a hard-boiled detective novel on Mars. What? The same guy wrote those? How do I sell them to my customers? I like to make people work all down the line. 
there are three kinds of trilogies. There's the kind that J.R.R. Tolkien invented, which is the big, fat book sold as three separate volumes. That's what Lord of the Rings is. Mm-hmm. There's a trilogy, which is where you write a novel. It's a success. You get asked for a sequel. It's a success. You get asked for another one, and you decide, okay, is this going to be my life writing this series, or am I going to cut it off? And there's the kind of series that a trilogy, it's naturally three different ways of looking at material, natural triptych. I've done all three of those. The big novel divided into thirds, that's Wake, Watch, and Wonder, my trilogy about the worldwide web gaining consciousness. This, the book that was a success spawned a sequel, spawned another sequel. That's uh, my Quintaglio series from early in my career, Farseer, Fossil Hunter, and Foreigner. And my agent said to me at the time, you can go writing these forever. And I thought, no, I don't want to be pigeonholed. And then there's the natural triptych. Uh, and uh, my Neanderthal series, Hominids, which won the Hugo, Humans, which was a finalist, and Hybrids, the final volume in the trilogy. One has uh, a Neanderthal from a parallel world where they survived, and we did not, coming to our world. Second one has one of us going to their world. The third one has uh, uh, an attempt to find a synthesis between the two worlds. It makes sense as a trilogy. But I've done all three kinds of trilogies now. I have no desire to do any more right now. <laughs> stretch my muscles artistically in the various ways you can do that piece of art and I've done it now speaking of stretching uh, you kind of flirted with television a couple of times now uh, they, it, it's a seductive uh, little wench TV yes <laughs> is that something you want to go back to absolutely again? Yeah. absolutely for a couple of reasons the first the three reasons actually the first is the money is insane it's great it's great money and you know I'm in my 50s now I gotta start thinking about retirement at some point and uh, writers don't, you know, they may not, uh, they have all kinds of pluses in their life. The minuses, they've got no pension, except what they've set aside for themselves. There's no government or company retirement plan for them, I should say. Um, so the, the insane money is appealing. Why wouldn't it be? It's appealing mm-hmm. to everybody. The audience is gigantic. You know, you measure the audience if you're lucky as an author. You measure your audience in hundreds of thousands of people. And if you're lucky in television, you're measuring your audience in millions or tens of millions, or if you're really lucky, hundreds of millions of people. That's for any artist you want to reach a large audience. And the third thing is it's a different kind of writing. Writing for television, I wrote for the TV series Flash Forward, an adaptation of my novel on ABC. Uh, It's a completely different set of intellectual muscles. You write prose fiction. And it's the inner life of the character, the monologue that's going on in the head of your point of view character. Oh, I just came into the room. I see the guy there that I've been thinking about killing, but is this the right time? I don't know. He looks like he might actually be armed. It's all inner monologue. Television, it's not. You have to write the exterior lives of people. So it's different creatively, and that keeps me fresh. So... With that interest, is there anything on the horizon in television? You know, it's a million steps. So is there anything on the horizon? Well, there's nothing that's going to be a January 2014 replacement (laughs) series. But with a variety of different producers I have at various levels of uh, pitching and development and so forth, Red Planet Blues as a TV series, Wake, Watch, and Wonder as a TV series. Uh, My Neanderthal novels, Hominids, Humans, and Hybrids, we're calling the series Parallax in that case. Uh, so absolutely, these things are uh, getting all the right meetings in Hollywood and also in Canada uh, with very high-level people attached to them. But uh, for everything that you know, 
gets begins development for television, one literally in a hundred ends up being on the air. So uh, I, I'm still at the table and still playing the game, but uh, we haven't uh, got the winning hand yet. I'm not sure the odds are even that good. <laughs> the odds are really bad. That's right. The odds are really, really bad. There are so many books published and so little film or television is actually an adaptation. Yes. The little test I do for people is this. Um, until last month, the answer to this question was two. Now the answer is three. Of all the novels that have won the Nebula Award, which is the Academy Award of mm. Science Fiction, been given every year since 1965, how many have been adapted into movies? And the answer until last month was two. And the fact two of the very first, Dune, which has now been made twice, and Flowers for Algernon, known as Charlie in its movie version, now made twice. And nothing else, not by the biggest names in the field, not Rendezvous with Rama, not, mm. um, you know, Gateway by Frederick Pohl, not anything by Ursula K. Le Guin that won a, that won a, a, a nebula. Um, and now we had Ender's Game. Yeah. And that's it. So we've got three out of about uh, almost 50 now. Uh, that have been adapted. And one of those is mine, Terminal Experiment, which hasn't been adapted, although many times under option in the interim. So yeah, even when you take the top award winners, the chances are vanishingly small that one of them is going to be made. And if you haven't won a big award with your novel or somehow distinguished it from the pack, the chances are even slimmer that something's going to be adapted. Mm -hmm. So you're here at a convention. Um, Not just and you're any convention. I'm here Hal at Halcon yes. 2013 in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Atlantic <laughs> Canada's premier sci-fi and fantasy event. Yes, it's fantastic. I've been coming since they started doing them again uh, four years ago. Uh, you are a full-time writer. Yes. How much of your schedule is devoted to cons and personal appearances? And how does that impact your writing? I was a science fiction fan before hmm. I was a full-time writer. I've been going to conventions since I was 13 years old. <laughs> so they're an important part of my social life. So I'm going to answer this question by saying that uh, next weekend I'm at another convention in Rochester, New York. The weekend after I'm at another one and another one. Uh, and I probably do 15 in the course of a year. But that's because I like doing them. Uh, and I meet my friends there. It's kind of a permanent floating party where you're always running into somebody that you know to have dinner with or coffee with. Um, but they are not necessary. Uh, authors, uh, perhaps early in their career, which I no longer am, might find that there's some value in building their name a little bit uh, by going to them. But really, I go to them because um, I enjoy them and because very nice people, like the people here in Halifax, are kind enough to invite me and, you know, uh, pay my way and so forth to be out here. Fantastic. So does it does it get in the way of writing sometimes, yes. though? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Anything that isn't actually writing yeah. is getting in the way of writing. And I always counsel people who are at the beginning of their writing careers to be wary of what I call para-writing activities, things that make you feel like a writer but aren't actually adding words to whatever your project is. And it's very easy to teach courses in writing, to edit uh, for a magazine or for a book, a line or whatever, to go to conferences, to get active in writers' group politics. And all of these have their place in very strict moderation because they all feel like I'm doing something writerly, but they aren't actually getting you any closer to having a book on the bookshelf. 
Speaking of that, how much time do you get to read other books these days? You know, I did a Q&A here, or not a Q&A, but um, one-on-one with Terry uh, Brooks, who was an old friend of mine yesterday, Terry and me on stage just chatting. And Terry said, you know, he reached a point when he was uh, getting into his 60s, so that's older than I am, uh, where he said, you know what, for Pete's sakes, I'm a writer, I should have time to read every day and not feel guilty about it. And I made that same choice about 10 years ago. I said... Despite this discussion of para-writing activities, you cannot be a writer without a good writer, without being a reader. And I read voraciously in nonfiction as research for my books. The sad truth is that I get to read very little fiction. The thing that I create, I, I get to make very little of, read very little of. I'm sure if you ask the actors here what TV shows they watch, most of them will say, I don't. And part of that is, at the end of your workday, Do you want to go and do that thing that you did all day long? At the end of your day of working in radio, now just sit in my easy chair and turn on the radio and listen and audit what they're doing over in the competition for the next few hours. No, you're going to do something completely different because you need to. Read tons of uh, nonfiction, and the fiction tends to be by my friends. My great friend Robert Charles Wilson, fellow Hugo uh, winning uh, Canadian science fiction writer just has a new novel out this past week called Burning Paradise and that's what I'm reading right now So what's on the horizon for, for you publishing wise? What's coming out next? Well my next book uh, has the working title The Philosopher's Zombie but since it has no zombies <laughs> in it that title will almost certainly change uh, but it's a novel about uh, the nature of consciousness and why it is that atrocities from Nazi Germany through Abu Ghraib ancient times right up to the present day continue to occur. Nice that you're seeing your, see you're taking on simpler topics as you go through. Well, you know, it's funny. I've read Planet Blues. My current book is arguably one of the simplest books I've written. It's a hard-boiled noir detective novel that's set on Mars against the backdrop of the great Martian fossil rush. It's rollicking, it's fun, it's fast-paced, and I think it works very well as a mystery. Everything goes snick, snick, snick the way it's supposed to. But it is not... Uh, the deepest of the novels that I've written, in large measure because the main character uh, is not, uh, he's a hard-boiled detective, he's not one of these guys who's given to philosophic rumination. Uh, And my reader said, that's great, I loved it, fast-paced, enjoyed it thoroughly. Now, when are we going to get another one that we're going to spend hours arguing with our friends and spouses (laughs) about what you've said philosophically? Well, they, they let me stretch my legs, my my myself in a little bit of a different direction for a book. You got to go back and give the audience what they expect, and my audience expects what I've come to call not science fiction but philosophical fiction. So not sci-fi, but fi-fi. <laughs> Does that ever feel like a restriction? I mean, was it hard no. to, to this? No. Book? You know what? This has been the most. Uh, liberating of fields to write in. If you write, you know, we, we get lumped together with category or, or commercial or genre fiction writers. The terms are used interchangeably. But if you go to the Harlequin website, you can see the list of things that are allowed in each of the separate Harlequin romance imprints. They have to be specifically this number of words, no more, no less. If uh, it's this particular line, the heroine is allowed to cuss but not drop the F-bomb. In this one, she can drop the F-bomb. In this line over here, she can stay out overnight, uh, but you can never actually see the actual getting it on. In this one over here, yes, we can actually have a sex scene. In this one over here, uh, it has to end with the character getting married. It can't end with premarital sex. These are literally 
the restrictions in writing that feel. In writing in mystery, because you're doing a character, uh, every book has to pretty much follow every other book. And because mysteries tend to get read out of sequence, despite the fact that, you know, some people are grafted and uh, A is for alibi, trying to force you to read them in <laughs> sequence. If I asked you quickly now, what's the fourth book in Jeff Lindsay's Dexter series of novels, you wouldn't know. And if I put them in front of you, you would have a hard time putting them fungibly in the right order. Um, science fiction has let me write action adventure, far future spaceships and aliens, near future or even present day stuff, romance, uh, courtroom drama, uh, heart-wrenching family drama. It has been absolutely the biggest possible tent creatively for me. And I'd like to think I've taken full advantage of that latitude. What do you think of the sub-genres and how people keep trying to create more and more subgenres and find these little niches inside of genre fiction like urban fantasy or uh, steampunk or you know they, they'll get diesel punk and, yes. and, and bustle punk and all this other you know bustle punk that's a new one I had heard of diesel punk I have a friend who writes that but bustle punk is new on me you know we are categorizers by nature you know the, the famous joke there are only two kinds of people those who divide people into two kinds of people and those who don't right <laughs> we do this by nature is something in possibly related to our neuropsychology that we only have a, an ability to to um, juggle so many pieces of information at one time. The reason phone numbers are seven digits long is because Bell's research showed that you could remember seven but not eight, and uh, we find ways of chunking them. We have you know area codes separate from the other part of the number because you can juggle a little more if they're categorized for you. So we do this naturally. Our brain is predisposed to this. I don't care. Um, no one has ever tried to put a subcategory label on my work. Uh, and I'm quite content that they don't. I would not want to be identified as a space opera writer mm. or a military SF writer, which is a category I don't even like to read, uh, or an alternate history writer, which are some of the you know enduring categories in the field that have had more legs than bustle punk has had. Yes. <laughs> um, what I really want to be identified uh, as is a Robert J. Sawyer writer, and that my books have some commonalities between them, perhaps, but I have no particular desire to see people trying to hang labels on them, although academics will always uh, attempt to do that. Uh, I gave a reading last weekend in um, Thunder Bay. It was me and Vincent Lan, the great uh, doctor, who was also, of course, a, a, a Giller Award-winning writer, and Anya Zato. And uh, somebody said in advance, well, you know, what have you got in common with them? Which was a little bit of a dick, right? And I said... We're all excellent writers. <laughs> but what happened is all three of us, it turned out, were reading novels. We didn't know what we were going to read in advance. Well, we knew what our latest books were. But we were all reading from uh, books about expats, expatriates. Vincent was reading about the Chinese expat community in Vietnam, which is his own cultural history. Anya is not French. was reading about the French um, expat community in New York in the early years of the 20th century. And I was writing about an expat community of people living on Mars. So there always are ways to, to find these things. And I said that to the audience, say, hey, did you realize that we're all reading about the same thing in very different ways? You can find any number of ways to categorize things. And that's, uh, that's one of the games humans play. What are your thoughts on the trend for the last couple of years of um 
don't know if it's the publishers, but this this trend towards uh, young adult. Young adult is wonderful. There was a time ten years ago when we thought the last generation of readers had already been born, and that the coming generations were going to spend all their time doing video games. They're going to do all their time watching. TV or movies, and then they would never read books. It turned out that reading has distinct and different pleasures from every other kind of entertainment. And it's fabulous that in their profusion, young adults, which is a euphemism, they're old children, they're not adults <laughs> at all. Not one of them you know, can vote or buy a, buy a beer. Um, these old children really are engaged by reading. And I think it's absolutely fabulous that they're, that publishers are scrambling to make sure that not just the current generation, but subsequent generations are going to be voracious consumers of fiction. Oh, we definitely look forward to that. I think that's time for us. Cool. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank thank you. Absolute pleasure talking to you. Hear that sound? That's a handshake across the table. Right. <laughs> yes, thank you very My much. Pleasure. You were a fantastic interviewee. Thank, <laughs> thank you. Hi, I'm Hugh. And I'm Pat. And we're the hosts of the Way of the Buffalo podcast. We're a weekly-ish, sometimes irreverent, fiction and interview podcast about telling stories in the digital age. Basically, representation is important, and the more books there are out there, the, the more range and the better the quality. We featured stories from Ken Liu, Amanda C. Davis, William Meikle, and others. I put you in charge of the Parallel Worlds Research Division, and this is the best you can do? This isn't just paper, sir. It's the fictional footprint of an entire civilization. Plus, interviews with such luminaries as Mer Lafferty, Chris Roberson, and Philippa Ballantyne, just to name a few. Literary fiction is genre fiction without anything happening, because <laughs> genre fiction has both. There you go. Yeah. The, there you go. Yeah. Yep. So it's better. So if you want to know where storytelling is headed, look us up in iTunes. Or visit wavethebuffalopodcast.blogspot.com. Because fiction's not dead. It's just going the way of the buffalo. Tune in to the way of the buffalo. This is a fabulous podcast. Hugh brings a wonderful aesthetic to the diversity of stories that he puts up and the, and the authors that he interviews. Uh, so definitely go back through the archives and treat yourself to some buffalo-y goodness. Nutty Bites is produced by Nimlas Studios. You can find us at nimlas.org slash blog. Contact feedback at nuttybites at nimlas.org. Call our voicemail line at 347-NUTTY42 or 347-688-8942. This work is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 Unported License. Basically, you can share it, you can send it around to your friends, just don't change it, don't sell it, don't try to make any money off of it, and link back to me, my site, and everything.